This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 53 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. It's just great to get out of the UK, fed up with tax, VAT's 20%, gas is $2.50 a litre. What you don't realise is the amount of culture you leave behind. You get rid of one, you gain another one. And I, I don't know which one's better, but no, there's something quintessential British that I miss, but then there's something quintessentially British that I don't miss. That's the voice this week of my guest, Alex Draper. He's the CEO of DX Learning. I first reached out to Alex via LinkedIn. He caught my eye as he was posting articles on Forbes.com about company culture. Alex believes that company culture sits fair and square with senior CEOs and VPs. As most of us know, if you don't get it right, it can have devastating effects for a company. Listen as Alex can help you develop as a leader by taking time each week to engage System 2 brain, asking for relevant feedback and having compassion for others. You can only do that if you have compassion for yourself. But ultimately, to create culture, you must ask one question. What is my purpose? My first question for Alex was, where was he from and where is he now? I was born in the hills of sunny, not so sunny Worcestershire, as they say here in America. Liam Perrin sauce, by the way, anyone listening, Liam Perrin sauce is the best sauce in the world. Uh, and you should put it on your burgers. I love that. So I uh, grew up with more, more sheep than human beings in Worcester uh, and lived a pretty happy life there until I came to America for a vacation with my friends. I uh, went to New York and I was like, ooh, this is fun. I should move here one day and did. And uh, moved to Chicago. I think that's the right accent in 05 and uh, have never looked back. Really, really happy here when it's interesting when you travel from one country to another, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly of both countries. And I, I know, Dave, you live in Canada. So if we put all those three countries together, we might have a pretty solid culture. I, I think you're right there. And it's, it's interesting, although we're very similar in terms of language, you know, from the, the new country to the old country and vice versa. It's amazing the context in which the language gets understood and how things can get misinterpreted. So tell us a little bit about your um, your company, because you're all about people's feelings, people's sort of ways of working and all about culture and, and what have you. So give the, the listeners a little bit of a flavor about what DX Learning is all about. I'll, I'll just play off what you just said there. You know, things can get misinterpreted. My whole mission and why I started DX in 05 was to wipe out bad leadership, period. Uh, just from experience from both being, being led by people who I think unintentionally did things that they shouldn't have done for those that they serve, um, and just seeing the thousands and thousands of managers and the mistreatment of human beings out there, I thought, well, let's, let's try and do something. So that's sort of where it all came from. But I think what you just said was really important, which is the misinterpretation. We, we're human, uh, and the business model is this. We're all human. We're all wired not to lead, if you think about it. The brain is a selfish mechanism for survival. It wants to keep you alive, but leadership is all about keeping your team alive. So most of, most of us have no idea that our brain is playing tricks with us on a daily basis, that it's saying to us, no, 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 keep you alive, which can be from anything from 
communication, selfish communication, all about me and thinking that the people I'm speaking to have the same level of understanding. But a Canadian, one word to a Canadian might be very different to a British guy, which to a Kiwi, to a to a German person. So we're all human, but we see the world very differently. And, and I just say that because I think the business problem that we're trying to solve is self-awareness or lack of it. Um, and there's some wonderful research out there from Tasha Uric. If you haven't read her book, Insights, please read it. Just a great book about self-awareness. 95% of us think that we're self-aware, yet only 10 to 15% of us are. And I think that's where bad leadership comes from, not through bad intentions. We're just, we have no idea about what we say and what we do and how it's very selfish orientated. And that's what our business is all about. It's the, the servant leadership mindset of serving others and the understanding that your brain is wired to do the opposite. That's a great explanation, actually. I never thought of it in that way, that we're just looking about our survival. We're never sort of thinking about the team or necessarily the tribe, you know, the, the group of people that we're with. How long does it take to really assimilate into a new tribe or a new group, in your opinion? Because you, you've had a lot of experience of that with DX Learning, and you've gone into probably some tough cultures where you think it should be fairly straightforward, but there's some kind of big roadblocks there. And, and, and the, the elephant in the room, aren't they? That people are not seeing them. But is that because they're too much into the business? They're in the woods. They're not seeing the woods from the trees, that type of thing. Is that really what's going on? Well, I think you're you're probably alluding to a, a challenge that we have in terms of my job as a leader. So I'm, I'm the CEO. I've got 10 employees. My job as chief empathy officer is to find the time to get to know my people on that human level. And instead of having my head down doing the work, have my head up above the work so that I can assimilate new employees. We can get to know each other. I have the time to, to understand what's going on in their lives and act accordingly. Yet most of us are in the work. And therefore, you know, if you've got a new employee, new team member, the tribe is, is all over the world. And, and as we are working in hybrid workplaces now, unless there's a deliberate and intentional act to stop slow down and actually talk to the humans within your team and learn that there's a, there's a human behind all the work that they do, then that's where things go horribly wrong. And, and you're seeing it in America now with the, I, yeah, I'm going to annoy some Americans now, the great resignation, the great quit, whatever you, the great something. Look, people are quitting. It's because they, they're sick and tired of being treated like crap. It's great. It's a wonderful renaissance for, for putting a little bit of human back into the workplace, which is thanks to COVID that this is what's happening. But it's happening because leaders are not leading. Again, back, back to what we said, they're being selfish unintentionally and not selfless, which takes intentionality. And, and it's nice. And, and we won't just bash the Americans. We're very much in Canada, it's happening, you know. And in the UK, we have it as well. You know, we have it in all cultures and different levels. I, I think what was really interesting, what you said, though, and I really picked up on this, is time. There's the major thing, right? Because I think culturally from where I came from, baby boomer, you know, we got brought up in that very traditional sort of hierarchy. You worked up through the ranks as dead man's shoes. You had to behave yourself. and But people had time to breathe, to think, and to, to, to be able to sort of have those gestures of going out having a coffee, have 10 minutes with somebody. It wasn't compressed. So are we saying it's not necessarily always culture, and I'm, I'm, I might get this wrong, but you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It's do a compression of time a little bit as well, would you say? Uh, well, number one, you look like a very young baby boomer. So so you look great, by the way. Pay you later. <laughs> and I'm a Gen X, but and I grew up, remember my first my first ever job when I was 21 back in uh, Reading, UK. We used to still go out for lunch for an hour and a half and have a few pints. It was great. I loved it. I loved it. Again, thinking time, man. 
There was no emails before nine o'clock. We left work at five. Uh, worked hard, of course, but that, that was the culture. Let me give you an opinion. Let, let me see what you think about it. I think it is culture. Just take what's happening right now. What's expected of the, of the people is, is a result. So what's happened is if the expectations of the people within the company is a result, then we will get that result. So what you, what you see in predominantly in America, but all over the world is the values of the company, the way in which we behave. And just think of, think of culture in a simple theme. Culture is a mirror of leadership. So I'm a CEO of DX. The culture is essentially a mirror of my behaviors and what I value, what I believe in, and how I behave. So if I value thinking time and I value people having time to, to really take a step back and understand what's going on, and I value not going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting, and I do it myself, that becomes the culture because then my team will do it as well. So what's happened over the last 20 years is that leaders do not have not valued that because their boards uh, have valued shareholder value creation or financial results. So what have they done? We've all just worked, put our head down, stuck our heads in the weeds, and we're all just running at a million miles an hour. And that's become the culture. So we, in terms of culture, in its simplistic terms, whether you lead a team of one, 10, a family, what you do, what you say, what you do, and what you believe becomes that culture. So we can all just change a culture overnight by saying, no, let's stop going from meeting to meeting. Let's value, hey, ooh, crazy idea. Let's have Tuesdays and Thursdays as no meeting days. So again, you, that becomes what you value and, what you, and that becomes in the culture. Uh, again, I adore what you're saying because it really speaks to kind of a, an organic way that you're running the company. It's, it's kind of coming from the heart and the soul, right? It's not just braced on the brain and, you know, trying to get the shareholders value up and that type of thing. But here's the thing, and, and, and this is a reality of the situation. How much does fear play in people upsetting a current company culture? Well, I, I, I'll answer it simply, but then there's a, you can go deep on this one, a lot. So but typically cultures are driven by fear because fear drove results. That was the way in which people led over the last 10, 20 years, right? It was a culture of fear. Take Boeing, take Apple, take take revered CEOs and cultures, but it wasn't really a great culture. It was just a culture of fear that got the result and they you know, made a lot of money. Ask anyone who works within those companies, but I, I feared for my job and I dared say something about it. The end result of this is psychological safety, which is two words that have been used maybe too much, but it's so powerful. So psychological safety. I feel I can say what needs to be said um, without fear of negative consequences. So how do we create that? Well, that's a deliberate act of, of leadership. It's a deliberate act of caring for your people. Um, and that takes time and energy. But yeah, to totally agree. We haven't changed our cultures for fear of what happens if we speak up. Here's the thing. I, I wanted to just talk through a scenario with you. So we've got a company culture and I can really relate to this because uh, last two or three jobs I've been in has been really tough with the culture because as a new person, when you come into it, you inject some energy into that, but you've got to be careful how you do that. Okay. You have to be very measured. You have to want to know that you're going to get an end result in small increments, not the, you're not going to win the war. You're going to win the little battles. That's probably the, the way to do it, isn't it? So if you had a company culture that really had gone down the pan, they've been struggling for the last three years, they've had a turnover of people, man, you know, sales managers have come in, nobody stayed more than six months. We've still got the core people in the company, say the core five or six people. What would you do as a consultant uh, from DX Learning? How would you go in and how would you assess it? And then how would you give them a kind of roadmap of how to 
start to solve the issues? I'll start with our own story at DX, and it's sickening. So I started DX to wipe out bad leadership um, based upon my own experiences over 20 years. I lost every employee. Every employee quit from 2015 to 2019. Everyone. I built a business to stop this from happening, but everyone's quitting. I'm like, so, and then just a little bit of credit where credit's due. We changed something. I will, I'll talk you through that in a second, but from 2019 to today, not one person's quit. Wow. So that transition, it was one thing changed, which was, which was me. I realized this goes back to our earlier conversation about thinking time. I took a step back to think through well, what's going on. And of course it was me. Um, what I what I believed and what I was saying were two very different things. I was working too hard, doing head down. I, I was not catering for the people. I believed it, but my actions did not follow that up. Um, and unfortunately, I, I did a lot of harm. So it was great. It was a wonderful experience. So my 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 advice and what what we do is to help people have that moment of elevation and, and epiphany of you know culture, especially CEOs and founders. We, not through bad intentions, our heads are just, we're just so passionate about what we do and we are passionate about our people, but there's a big difference between saying it and doing it. We need to have thinking time, engage system two part of the brain. System one is the intuition. Uh, it's where all the biases are. It's, there's a wonderful book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman about those two systems of the brain. But essentially what we're trying to do is get people to think think through that. And, and we have engagement surveys, 360s, experiential learning activities for people to isolate and understand about what's working with their culture and what's not working with their culture and a roadmap to how they can create a, a culture worth working for, where you both get the human side of things and you get the results at the same time. So this kind of gives you a, a glimpse, which I did for myself. Yeah. Um, and then that's really became the business. You know, I have to congratulate you. That is a superb accolade to have, isn't it? Since 2019, you didn't lose anybody. And, you know, to just do kind of a, a 180 degree sort of swamp takes a lot of inward searching, doesn't it? But how much does vulnerability play into that? I, I can't say 110% because that's stupid. Doesn't make, that doesn't make mathematical sense. 100%. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, isn't that the... That the transition from the hero to the, the vulnerable to the humble, and that's what you're seeing right now. We we want to work for someone who is humble. Humility is driven by vulnerability, and that's that's the the transition that we're seeing. It's like growth mindset. Carol Dweck's work around growth and fixed mindset. Fixed mindset is the belief that I was born this way, and there's nothing I can do to improve. I got a fixed mindset for cooking, and my wife downstairs would totally agree. And for gardening too, uh, which is crazy because I'm a British guy. So fish and chips and a Friday and, you know, sort of, yeah, spaghetti bolognese if you're lucky sort of thing, yeah? <laughs> if you're lucky, and then it's going to be too, it's gonna be overcooked anyway. Because but that belief, but I, that fixed mindset is the belief which inhibits my ability to get better at something. So, yeah, I just get worse. Growth mindset is the, it's that belief against this brain, the bloody brain. Um, it's the belief that I wasn't born this way, but I am imperfect. And through grit, determination, and learning, I'll get better at something. That's that vulnerability. So, so by triggering the growth mindset, you're actually just triggering vulnerability. It's like, I'm not perfect. I'm going to be open and honest about my imperfections and, and my industry and leadership training globally. I'm sickened by it. And it's through lack of it. I'm not too sure that what to say about it because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. But we spent so much time over the last 20 years by focusing just on strengths. Yeah. Right. Hey, you're amazing at this. You're amazing at that. Strengths this, strengths that. And I put this in, into human terms. We don't divorce someone because of their strengths. We divorce someone because of their, their blind spots. 
and we haven't talked about them. And leadership's no different. You're seeing people leave companies because of the blind spots and the things that people are doing that they didn't know that they're doing. We've just got to be, again, it goes back to vulnerability. Be open, ask for feedback, know that you're not perfect. Be vulnerable. Don't get upset when people tell you that you suck at something. It's okay. And that's what we've got to focus on. Blind spots, not just strengths. It's uh, every human's got both strengths and weaknesses, and we've got to all be comfortable in our own skin. So I'm going to just, again, I love giving the listeners some scenarios because it's, it's tangible evidence. It's you've lived and breathed it. So give me an example of the worst case scenario you've gone into, and we can be very generic, uh, and how you went about fixing that. You know, what were some of the challenges? And, and to be fair, were there some things that you can't fix? Is that something that we have to be realistic about? <laughs> yes, to answer that question. And 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 here's a scenario um, where we haven't had the change, but that might give some context. So organization, successful organization built by the, the founders, started the business 60 years later, still, still in the business, highly successful, like all the success syndrome, and continue to be successful, but hemorrhaging the good people, right? At, at this particular point in the last five years, the good people have started to leave. That's never happened before. CEO, founder, does everything. He's got the sticky fingers in nearly every facet of the business. Nothing gets done. It's 600 people, a lot of people, but nothing gets done without their approval. Has no idea. I was brought in because the HR person there wanted to give it a go. So brought in, I had numerous dinners and lunches and, and just to understand what's going on. And just the most giving person ever. And, and I think this is the scenario that of when it doesn't work, the self-awareness piece just wasn't there, right? They're, they're, they truly believe that by giving people big bonuses at the end of the year, the golden handcuffs, by giving people time off and all of these things that are more superficial, what is a great culture, when in actual fact, didn't realize that by doing all the work for the people, by not giving them any decision-making and that stealing of autonomy, you know, isn't a good thing. It's like, but, but I've been successful and couldn't get over the fact I've been successful. And I think this is the this, this sickening story of most leaders don't know that they need to change until it's too late. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's a problem, right? Where our, our own success is getting the better of us. Blackberry failed, Steers failed. I think we could probably, all of these scenarios, same thing. It was by the time they realized it, it was too late. And I think that's the story and, and, and couldn't get over their own success. I couldn't, I can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. You know, that's the thing. You, you, again, you hit the nail on the head. It's about having that open mindset. You may have had a closed mindset, but let me take you on a journey. Now, hold your hand, open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart, your soul. Yeah. Isn't it? You've got to be able to absorb. That's the thing. Because what we're saying at the moment, we've been taught a lot by the new generation, haven't we? Coming up through the, the, the ranks, you know, they've come into the workplace the last five years. And you know what? They've mixed it up. They've stirred it up and suddenly we're reeling, you know, Gen X, baby boomers run a back foot. We're thinking, what just happened? You know, we have this amazing culture. We thought amazing culture, but we had these structures in place. And because we're brought up in an environment originally where structure is very reassuring, isn't it? It's something that we latch onto at school and the family and then to the traditional workplace. It's been blown away, isn't it? Well, here's a fact. Every generation scaled the next generation. So, we're just doing what we've always done. But I think this generation is, to your point, I love what you're blowing it up. And, and deservedly so, right? The expectations of the young is just remarkable. I don't want to be treated like crap. I know what being treated for looks like because I've got Google now and I can Google everything. 
And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to find someone that, that will give it to me. And I'll forego a high paycheck because I don't care about money and compensation. A wonderful um, bit of research just came out of MIT, Sloan Review, about toxic culture is what's driving people to leave. And, and culture is 10.4 times a predictor of success and retention than compensation is. And that's just, there you go. They care more about culture than money. Finally. So yeah, they're ripping up the script. That's great. It is good. I mean, but you know, sometimes you think, oh gosh, I just wish it'd go back to the old way because there's less stress and I can cope with that. But you know what? We have to realize that the world constantly changes and we have to evolve. And if we want to survive in this world, even as the oldies, the golden oldies in the culture, do it because it's exciting. You know, you can learn a lot from it. But you, like you said, you got to open your heart, open your mind, open your eyes. And that's so, so important. Hey, listen, I want to just say something to the listeners because you have done a couple of great articles recently in Forbes and uh, they were great. And you were all about matching what you say with what you do. Why is there a disconnect with people when they come to that? Yeah, that's the old matching your identity, what you think about yourself with, with the reputation of what other people think about you. And I think that goes back down to that earlier conversation around self-awareness. What I think about myself, because we're just totally inept at talking anymore, right? No one bloody talks to each other. Um, we, we've lost the art of being honest and, and therefore not through bad intentions. Most of us, our identity, what we truly believe, what we're good at, who we are as a human being, we believe that everyone else believes the same thing. And, and, but the reputation is what people say behind your back. And if there's a disconnect between what they're saying and what you're thinking, well, that's a, that's a problem. And that's that self-awareness or lack of it. It's led by our inability, one, to be vulnerable, two, to be asking for feedback, to be having conversations and being honest. And going back to psychological safety, I can ask for feedback all day. But unless my team are feeling safe, they're not going to tell me what I need to know. They'll tell me what I want to know, which is the fuzzy-duzzy stuff. So we, we just got to get vulnerable let's go back to that we've got to get vulnerable you know we've, we've got to start being honest we've got to start matching people's identity with their reputation and, and caring about it it's like you need to care about your reputation and actually some people going back to that story of the c with the ceo i don't think they cared about their reputation and if you don't care about that then again i'm i'm wasting my time and um, there's something more of a value problem with that human being so care about what your reputation is because that's your legacy and, and that was really good you went back to that previous example because i want to give you a fair sort of chance to flip the coin over and say what's been the biggest success in your experience running dx going into cultures you know it might have been a complete basket case but you really brought it back on board and you got it to a great place and suddenly retention was like your company 100 percent. tell me all about that scenario that happened that way so you know there's there's questions that we need to ask and i i when it comes to culture and I, I love Patrick Lencioni's work on this subject. And uh, if you haven't read it, again, a wonderful book to, to take this in, to take culture and well, what, how do I go about this? And it's, it's called The Advantage. But there's a couple of questions in, in the book that you need to answer to create a great culture um, where you can change things around, which, which we work on with our clients. The first question is, why do we exist? Well, what's the purpose? Because again, that sense of belonging, connecting yourself to a higher purpose if you haven't answered that question, how on earth can I coming into your organization connect to something that's a higher purpose? And those in your organization are going, why am I working 10 hours a day? For what purpose? So you've got to answer that question. And, um, and for us, it's we shape organizations worth working for. What gets you out of bed in the morning to, after, to just get you excited about coming to work? So 
that's the first really important question. Why do we exist? Second most important question is how do we behave? Again, what do we value? So our, our values are client-centric, passion, pioneering, team, and smart working. We then define what that means. So for example, passion, we wholeheartedly believe that we what we do enhances the lives of those that we touch. And then below that, we have some of the behaviors, how we were expected to behave. That's the key. That creates the consistency about how people, because culture is all about behavior. It's all about leadership. It's a mirror. That's the crux of where you can take a company that, or anyone, any business, small or large, creating clarity around why we exist and how we behave. That's just two of the six questions. There's more questions. But for me, those are the two most important questions that you need to answer and get consistency and belief around. And $64 million question. Give me a couple of companies that have got it right in your opinion. Oof. It, the, the tough part of this one is, is, you know what? I don't know enough, but I know enough that it, I'll, I'll say it. I believe Microsoft have got it right. And here's why. The, again, making it simple. The culture changed. So I think it was, is it Satya? I forget his name, the CEO, Satya. He said, look, I've got to change this culture. When I came in, he said, we've got to change this culture from a culture of know-it-alls to a culture of learn-it-alls, which is growth mindset. Stop the fixed mindset to growth mind. Genius. And I mean, look at their share price. They're, they're a trillion-dollar company. He took it from where it was to where it is, and I truly believe it was culture. Now, of course, with that many employees, it's really tough to get that. But I believe that he answered the question why do we exist? And he answered the question, how do we behave at a huge macro level? So I've got to give that guy credit where credit is due. He changed Microsoft's culture by being clear and having clarity around why we exist and how we expect it to behave there. So that's probably an example that I, I don't know enough detail, but I know just enough to be confident enough. That's a good one to, to, to talk to. I always think Virgin comes across as a very interesting company and very much led by Richard Branson. But what I like about what he does, he's not frightened to jump in the trench with you and fight the battle in the trench with you, right beside you. That's what I get from him. And there's a lot of great warm feeling towards his company, isn't there? Well, he smiles a lot, so that always helps. <laughs> it does, it does. And he falls <laughs> off his bike quite a lot, by the way, as well. But yeah. that's another thing. Yeah. And in both those cases, it's, again, culture is a mirror of leadership. Both of those are great CEOs who, who believed, believed wholeheartedly about what culture should look like and demonstrated that. Not only said it, but did it. Uh, I know Howard Schultz from Starbucks is another one. He's the former, former founder and CEO of Starbucks. You go into a Starbucks store anywhere in the world, you get a really good consistent feel of how the team members, I think that's what they call them, operate and behave. So I think that's another wonderful example on a macro level of of a great culture that got the why do we exist and how do we behave questions answered with, with clarity for, for the employees and you'd see it on the front line. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Alex Draper, CEO and founder of DX Learning. Next, I want to ask Alex what had shaped his life and what led him on the journey to North America. In terms of things that shaped me in terms of, of why I went into the, the end result of my whole life is, is DX, right? It's, it's a summary of all of my experiences. And I think the, the key word in all of this is empathy. You know, we, we teach servant leadership. We teach 
leaders how to be more empathetic for those that they, they serve. So where did that come from? Where's the underbelly of all of that? Um, you know, born into a family. Um, my old man wasn't really a, the, the best of leaders, shall we say, was, was definitely not a servant leader. So got, got an early understanding of what it's not like to be on the receiving end of someone who doesn't believe is serving others or, and my parents were divorced, of course. So there you go. To yeah. Learn an early lesson of being a recipient of unempathetic leadership does to a human being. Um, but I was surrounded by people. And I think this is, there's a lesson in all of this. I, I was the youngest of five. So I'm, my oldest brother's 22 years older than me. He, he's almost a fatherly figure to me as all my siblings are. But because of the length, shall we say, or years between me and my, my siblings and therefore my grandparents and nieces, my nephews and nieces are similar age to me. What that taught me all the way through life is just to engage people. You need to surround yourself with people different to you. From an early age, I had to talk to my grandmom. So I was you know, a young kid having to talk to an 80-year-old. I had to converse with my, my siblings who are way older, all their friends coming around and I had to learn how to talk to them. I think all of this just comes down to communication. I think we actually started this whole whole podcast of communication or miscommunication. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I was blessed to have been raised in a family where I, I was forced to communicate to varying types of people from all walks of life, which has served me so well. And that's why one of the main reasons why I'm pretty good at my job and, and why DX will be successful. So that was the beginnings. And the idea of leadership and, and training, leadership training, which is what we do, came from went to college to, to learn to be a teacher. I just was told I wasn't going to be a very good teacher because my kids call me Mr. Funny Man and not Mr. Draper because I had more fun with them. So I learned that teaching kids is not the best thing because I'm a fun guy. And unfortunately, I had too much fun. My my then teacher said, look, you got to try, try and find a different path. Um, so that's how I got into teaching adults, which actually is worse because they talk more and they have all these horrible things with their brain. And then I just wish I was teaching kids again. So that's sort of I got, went into adult education and, and then I said, went to vacation in New York and I'm like, I just have to go to America. And I'm lucky that I did because America's where leadership training is probably just, uh, we, we spend what, 30 billion globally on leadership training, but it's about 14 billion here. And wow. Americans love it. So ha- happy to be here. Blessed. Okay. So I want to dissect that a little bit because you said yep. ask the question. So a couple of things. Love to know what mum and dad did. What, what were they? Did they both work? And did dad have a background in sort of a particular trade or what have you? And what did mum do? Dad was, uh, he worked for a nonprofit. Um, he was president of a, a nonprofit uh, heritage railway. Oh, not the Seven Valley Railway by any chance. Yeah, he was. Oh, we have, we have a few connections. That's oh my interesting. gosh. <laughs> Fascinating. That's probably an offline conversation for that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, no, because I know I had a very good friend and he was one of the, the, the inceptive members back in the early 70s of the Seven Valley Railway. And um, But at the time, the managing director of that railway was based up in, um, I think, Bridge North somewhere, I think he was, he lived. Yeah, yeah. And so I know his his family very, very well, and his son very well, Glyn. I think it was Glyn. I don't know if you knew him, but uh, when you were on the railway. But your dad was the overseer of the whole organisation then. He, he was... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, did that for many, many, many years. Okay. And were you dragged into the railway and had to go up every weekend? <laughs> I was. I loved it. I, let me, I, I loved it. And, and I love to go back to it when I go back to the UK. It's wonderful to, again, culture, you know, co- know where you came from. We were, when it comes to uh, engineering and steam engines, I think we British did a pretty good job of beautiful, beautiful engines. What was very interesting, actually, being in that culture, and I know that family was splitting apart. And again, we won't get into too many details on that. 
But you did have a ground rock or a bedrock of sort of foundation there that you could go to the railway at the weekends. You had a group of people that you could relate to. You could go and steam the engine up to Bridge North and back down to Kidderminster, down to Kiddy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was great fun. And I always remember doing that as well when I went on the, the railway. So I think culturally in Britain, we have a lot of those organisations where you can volunteer. And if family's not going so well or work's not going so well, you always have this other outlet, which is really amazing, you know. And that's something that I really valued when I was younger. Yeah. Anyway, we digress a little bit. So Dad was was uh, head of, sort of Seven Valley Railway, very significant railway in the UK, just to let the folks know. And uh, a lot of films get filmed on there, don't they? They do a lot of series on there as well. Yep. So what did mum do? Did mum sort of pretty much stay at home because with five kids, you had to manage all that. And what was mum like? Mum was the chief empathy officer of the family. The human part of everything, always a good shoulder to cry on. And a good cook. Yes, very good cook. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be with five kids. Okay. You do. All right, so... You basically there, you've got Alex, he's got this, you know, family sort of splits up, but you've got the culture of the Seven Valley Railway volunteering. Um, that's kind of molding you as a person at the early years. And what did you think at 10, 11, 12 when the, you know, the careers officer asking, Alex, what do you want to do when you kind of grow up and leave school? What did you have in mind? Huh. Um, oh, well, there, the answer to that question is my first ever, ever, you know, we all learn by our, our mistakes. We all learn by the things that have, have gone wrong. So very early age, my, my old man loved planes and trains. So uh, planes, I used to go to the Farnborough Air Show growing up and, and, and just hugely into fighter planes. So I want to be a fighter pilot um, from a pretty much 12, 13. For all the things that weren't so good, one of the things I was blessed with was, was a great education. So in the school that I was at, questions were asked, what do you want to do? I want to be a fighter pilot. Here's again one of those issues. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? You have all this confidence, but you don't. You lack the competence. So, all of this confidence, you know, led to a to become a fighter pilot. You need to do math and physics at least, and of course, get A's in both of those. I'm like, ah, a piece of cake. It wasn't a piece of cake. Yeah. Uh, far from it. So, got my GCSEs, and then of course, Dunning-Kruger confidence, no competence. Picked math and physics for A levels, and totally and utterly flunked them both. I'm not naturally good at these things. Never had a coach, wrong mentor, uh, never really had the, the, the questions that needed to be asked. And I went into things I shouldn't have done and failed miserably. And like burst my whole balloon of like wanting to be a fighter pilot. So left school and that's, that's when things went drastically wrong. My parents get divorced. I failed maths and physics. I couldn't be a fighter pilot. And the next two years of soul searching was pretty, you know, went back to work on the shop floor at Cosworth you know, manufacturing, just to figure things out. Um, so to spend two years of just working jobs, thinking time, and then the light bulb went off and, it, oh, teaching. I'm good at this stuff. I'm good at communicating. I'm good at empathy. I'm good at all of this. Then went back to college uh, a little bit later, and that's when it all began. But, yeah, that, ah. hope that, that, that first failure was really what, what both I learned from. And then subsequently, once I got out of my head, out of my ass, drove me to, to be more successful. You've got to fail, right? You know, and, and you sum it up so well because I did exactly the same thing as you did. I came back from Germany. I thought I was going to get all my O-levels. Two, two interesting girls, not in education, flunked my O-levels. I only got like three out of seven or eight that I was supposed to get. I had to go back. I had to, you know, I had to be very humble, go back in the lower sixth and redo my O-levels, you know. And it was so like such a learning curve, you know. But you learn from those mistakes. You think, I ain't going to do that again. 
and you dust yourself down and you get going. And it was lovely what you just said there. You went and did some manufacturing. You did a job and you had some thinking time. And that's the lovely thing about a manual manufacturing job. You have a lot of thinking time. And you thought, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. So, okay, let's uh, let's see how you got motivated. So you got yourself together. You managed to get some qualifications. Did you go to college or university? Uh, went to University West of England. Very good. Whatever you want to call that. <laughs> yeah, Bristol. Good old Bristol. Bristol. Yeah, Bristol. Yeah, know it well. And uh, what what did you take at university? What was the course? It was a degree in education to be a teacher um, with a focus on geography, which is actually my was at that point my passion. So that's what I got in to do. Then after the after year one, when my teacher, uh, professor, teacher, whatever you want to call it, um, told me, Alex, this is not the right job for you because your kids are calling you Mister Funny Man. I can tell you, you want to have fun and you're not taking this seriously. I was, but I just love to have fun. That's when I moved to just just straight geography, just to get my degree and get it over and done with. There you are. And what was your first job when you came out of university? Straight into my current line of work, adult, adult education, uh, working for a management consultant firm based out of Oxford, Oxford in the UK. Oh, great. So that really laid, laid the sort of bedrock really for what you do as you do now. Okay. Well, let's, let's revolve it back around to back to business again. I mean, it was a superb back backstory. I loved that. And the connections we had were just very, very weird. It's very weird indeed. You always say there's six degrees of separation with people, isn't there? But they are. Uh, crazy. Um, crazy. I want to ask you, why do HR departments never work? Ah, I talk a lot about this when I'm when I'm talking to colleagues in HR. So I, I believe my opinion is this. So think about people in, in operations and in finance and in uh, many different parts, sales. Their job is to grow the company. Their job is to grow. Legal and, and, and HR, which could be actually put into one, their job is to protect. And I just think that mindset is protect, protect, protect inhibits them from doing what's needed to be done, which is grow, grow, grow. So it's mindset. It's just a mindset. I get frustrated when I'm trying to talk to HR people because they don't like, mm, this is sweeping generalizations, but that the change, challenging the status quo, all these things, putting their, their, their job on the line to do what's right versus what's easy, all of these things, it's because they just need to protect which is not good for the business. And then they get a bad reputation because they're not growing. And that's kind of, unfortunately, where it's gone wrong and where I think we can get change of mindset. Guys, you're here to grow. Let's grow together. You're not in a little silo over there. You're part of this business. And, and that needs to be a reputation change from my point of view. So um, that's a good you know, answer because I know for me, uh, experiences with HR departments vary a lot, but when you actually realize they're there to protect the business, I think that's when the penny drops. That's when you can really understand, oh, okay, they're not about the employee necessarily. They're more about the protection of the business. That kind of gives a perspective on it. And I think that was a really good answer. And so a lot of great companies tend not to have HR departments. You tend to sort of find that they're evolved organically. But the ones that have gone down the corporate route and changed and become very formalized in what they do, it can have an adverse effect on a company, I've found, from, you know, from my experience. Agree, but that, that goes down to hiring the right people. You know, there, there is nothing wrong with an HR department. It's called human resources. So, it, and I, I speak to this, what's gone wrong is, they don't do the human stuff. They're just doing the resources. So it's like, right. let's put the human back into HR. Again, I, in my, my marketing department, our talent persona is, this is what we've done. Uh, our ideal client is someone between the ages of 35 and 45. She's female. She's progressive. She's in talent development or leadership development at director level. And she is willing to put her job on the line to do what's right. 
And so you, they're, they're, they're out there. There's lots of them. So again, it's that they're willing to change the reputation of talent and HR. And I think there's, again, change is happening. I agree. Just take Chicago and the Midwest. HR departments were there to protect. That was their sole job. So of course, you just got to change the, change the mindset and change the language, but there, there are great ones out there. What is the best way to connect with your people? As a leader? As a leader, or even, here's the thing, right? We always talk about leaders, but so much of culture is not necessarily the leaders. It's the next management, middle management below the leaders, because, you know, this is my experience, okay, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Middle management interprets what the leader wants a lot of the time, and then it gets disseminated, and that dissemination can be changed. It's like I, you know, Chinese whispers. We used to play it as kids, didn't we? You start with something that somebody said here. By the time it's got through six people, it's completely changed. Yeah. So answer the question, not just from a leader's point of view, but from middle management point of view as well. And let me go one step further, and let's, let's just say all all leaders now, and let's make let's go crazy and say, well, actually, if you just think leadership is the art of one human being positively influencing another human being, then actually we're all leaders. It's not just middle managers. So, fine, I I get the essence of the question. How do we all communicate? How do we all step up to play and lead and communicate effectively with each other? Empathy. And it's what what I was blessed with, thanks to my experience, and I, I take everything that I've gone through as as a as a journey to this so um but it's it's empathy by walking in the shoes of, of others and communicating not how you want to communicate but by communicating with how they want to see it and how they see the world you are more likely to engage them again going to that full circle selfish selfless if you communicate with a selfless mentality you are more likely to communicate effectively if you communicate with a selfish mentality about how you see the world what the 7.5 billion of us uh, we all have a brain that craves the same things, but we all see the world slightly differently. My question to all of you is, are you communicating in, effectively in the eyes of those that you are communicating to? And how would you know you talk to them? How would you like to be communicated to? What's your you know, short, long uh, email, verbal? All these things come from your ability to want to have empathy, to want to listen, to want to ask questions and want to get to know from a human level those that you serve. And that's what's lacking. Oh, superb, superb. How much of our culture has been taken over by the psychopaths and narcissists in this world? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 a lot. And, and why? But so why? Because narcissism has been allowed to manifest itself in, in culture because I think, up, I, this is my opinion, up to the level of director in a company, I believe there's a degree of innocence, right? You get to that level through just dogged hard work and yeah. doing good job and being cool and being cared for, having a good reputation. But to get from director to VP, man, you gotta you gotta do some pretty hardcore stuff. And that takes a degree of narcissism to become a VP and then an SVP. You gotta be selfish. Yeah, I hate to say it. You gotta protect thyself. Your brain loves it, by the way, because that's what your brain's designed for. So, and then for culture is a mirror of leadership. So you're, you're talking about company culture driven by narcissists and their behavior manifests itself in the whole company and you, and you wonder why people are leaving organizations. Yeah, and what's really interesting, it takes a very brave man or brave woman uh, to suddenly, once they've got to that position through the narcissistic route, which you, you, is a skill, you know, because you have to negotiate and navigate, and then they become vulnerable. They have an intentional vulnerability to show that, guess what? 
I'm human as well. But they have to get there first in order to be able to change some of the cultural things. And that's, it takes a really interesting person to do that because most people are the one way or the other a lot of the time. You know, they really can't switch, can they, that well. Who are some of the best people that you've seen that has done that so well? Have you experienced somebody that has been, oh God, he's narcissistic personality, but guess what? He really navigated and got to that empathetic place very, very well. Oh, good question. Let me answer the first one first real quick and before just thinking through if there's anyone I know, but the, the, the challenge that we've got, IQ versus EQ, we promote people based upon IQ versus promoting people on, on their emotional intelligence, right? Their ability to lead human beings. And you can be, you can be terrible at math. You can lead people. So why don't we, who cares about your math? It's, it's about how you lead. And, I, and that's what's fundamentally wrong. We're promoting the wrong people into leadership positions. We're promoting the people who are good at their job, not good at leading people. So until we fix that, then of course, we're going to have people who are narcissistic and just not good at leading people. So number one is fix that starts at school. We've got to teach emotional intelligence at school, but that's a whole different story. You know, I, I, I don't have a specific story, but I just want to speak to sort of what needs to happen in order for that to happen. You rise the ranks, done things that you probably would turn back and wouldn't do it again if you had the choice. If the CEO of a company, have a big or small, and oh, you're beating your chest, you're the hero, your brain's super excited because you're, you're surviving and you've got all this money. It takes some type of, a, of of event to change it. Something has to create that humility for you to go and have that oh shit moment. And that could be anything from your friend who you trust, your CEO leaving, and on the exit interview goes, I just can't stand working here anymore, Alex. What? So again, going back to this whole conversation has been about self-awareness. We call it unconscious incompetence. Most people have no idea. And it takes an event, it takes something concrete for them to go and have the oh shit moment. And that, that, that your dose of humble pie. And you know what? My, my leading comment is we all need a dose of humble pie. Let's get humble people. Here, 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 here. I, I love it. I love it. Well, we're just coming up to the top of the hour. And I just wanted to just do one more question, which I think is really important. I think this is the, the bedrock of what you really are talking about. Establishing a feedback culture and being that vulnerable position is a positive step. But what do owners of companies and people that run companies, what do they need to be aware of? What are the pitfalls in establishing that culture? And what are the kind of alarm bells that you've got to be aware of for that to work? So the precursor to a feedback culture is psychological safety, because you can ask for feedback all day, but unless the person that you're asking the feedback of feels fearless, then you're wasting your time. So step one create psychological safety. Uh, how do you do that? Well, we, unfortunately, we can do a whole podcast on that one, but it's check out our website, care, how to care for your people, clarity, autonomy, relationships, and equity. But there's a way in which you can create psychological safety. So step one, psych safety. Step two, have a model for giving feedback that strips away judging. CCL have a wonderful model. We have a model. It's all about fact-based conversations. Don't stop stop telling people how you how you feel without the data to support it, right? Don't, don't be judgmental. We call it be kind, don't be nice, so don't let the curtsy bias get the better of you and just sugarcoat things. Vice versa, don't be too crazy and just go full on blown and, and be too candid. There's a nice, happy medium and it's, there's a model for doing it. So, so learn the model, teach the model. Step three, sustain, sustain, sustain. You can't just expect it. it's not going to change overnight. We're not good at giving feedback. We're not wired for feedback. So sustain it, keep asking for it, expect it, hardwire it into your values as a culture. I expect you to give feedback. In fact, I'm going to reward people who give feedback. 
And that's how you kind of sustain it. Understand that before any of this happens, you need safety. Uh, then you need some type of framework to do it, a model for doing it effectively. And then you've got to sustain it by doing it yourself and hardwiring it into your culture, into your values and into your performance management system. Love it. Thank you so much. I love the way you compacted that down. It makes it really, really clear. Okay. A couple of things. You, you nicely talked about your website a moment ago. How do people get a hold of you and how do they get onto the website? Best way to get hold of me and just to get into what we do is, is our LinkedIn page. So, so uh, go into LinkedIn, do DX Learning, follow us. We put all this stuff daily in terms of little uh, tips and tricks. So do that. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I've got a monthly newsletter. So go to Alex Draper at DX Learning on LinkedIn. You'll find me and I'm always putting all the things that we talked about on a, on a weekly basis. And then our website is www.dx-learning.com. I love your personality, Alex. I really do. And you remind me of somebody. And I was thinking as we were going along, who does he remind me of? And you're going to laugh at it. Gordon Ramsay. Just the way you speak with the enthusiasm. Huh. Yeah. You know, you've got that kind of essence, that edge. And it's really good. It's a nice energy, you know, although he's he he does it in a very different way. But he has that you have that essence of the way you speak. And I thought he reminds me of something. It is Gordon Ramsay. Look at that. Hey. Eh? Well, take that Thank as a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. I, I will and I appreciate that. That's Thank no you. problems. And um, just, uh, I suppose we should ask really, who is your ideal client? I mean, if if you kind of surmised what you've kind of experienced over the last five, 10 years and what you do, who are the ones that you really can see? Okay, come to me. I can really help you. Any business, any business. It can, we're, we're agnostic. Any business where you have realized that either your well, remember, culture is the mirror of the leadership. So I have realized, or we have realized, whether you're an HR talent, a CEO, or any business leader, that what got us here won't get us there. And we're, we're just looking for help when it comes to our culture, when it comes to how we behave, our values. Again, I can't help people who don't want to change, but you realize that some type of change, and we, we want to have more of a people focused and more of a human focused those are the people we just love to work with. We, we, we don't know what to change, but we know that we need to change and we need more of a human-centric, people-first focus from how we behave and how we turn up and what we believe in. That's who we love to work with. Superb, superb. Well, okay, I'm not going to let you off. I've got one last question, okay? And it's the, the one I ask all my guests. Um, if you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? You get one chance on this planet, one chance, and it, it goes before you you even can blink an eye. Just just make the most out of every second. And, and I'm a ruminator. And just stop worrying, Alex. I'm a, I, I'd love to go back and whatever's going on in my mind, unfortunately, I'm a ruminator and I'm a worrier. Just stop worrying. And all that energy and wasted time that you worry, just experience the world and be present and, 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 and something I'd love to change about myself but it's almost too late <laughs> so I try and talk to myself talk myself into being less of a warrior being more present and to really truly enjoy this planet for what it is I love it and you know you're not the only warrior in the world I'm terrible for it as well I'm really bad for it but by doing you you overcome and that's usually what it is but Alex Draper, you know what? It's been a real great catch up, not just from the point of view of business, but culturally being from the UK, we've, we have an affinity there and the Seven Valley Railway. Who would have known it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what are the chances? Literally, what are the chances? Such a small world. 
I want to thank you so much for your time and I wish you the best luck with your journey. I mean, your business is going from strength to strength and I know that you do some great things on LinkedIn and you're writing these articles for Forbes. So just keep it up, man. Thank you. Really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. And thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I hope uh, y'all enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Anyone wants to help, give us a call, but thank you for having me. I pleasure. thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thanks, David. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Alex Draper, CEO and founder of DX Learning, helping you to create psychological safety in your workplace. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BrickCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated keeping us safe on the roads of North America.